Well, take your Bible and look over to, not Matthew, but James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're we're kind of saying goodbye to a good friend today. At least I I feel that way. We've been in this book maybe just about a year, and we're coming to the finito today. And uh, we are going to look at these last couple verses, and I trust that it's been a rich study for you. I know that it's been life-changing for me, but I come and we come to a fascinating little section of Scripture, and I want you to cast your eyes on it. If you brought your Bible in James chapter 5, we just want to look at those last two verses, which are the subject of a number of things, a number of uh, scholars' attention there, but follow with me as just I read it out of the ESV. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth, And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Look at it again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, as we come to the close of this book, I've included for you on your bulletin just our outline that we've been working through. Now, you remember we've said all along that these are tests of living faith, and James provides 10 areas where our faith must be put into practice. In other words, if your faith is real, then here's what it's going to look like. And we begin to walk through these. It's tested in our response to trials. How do you handle trials and difficulties? It's tested in our reaction to temptation. Do we grow from it? And do we allow the word to take root in our heart? Or do we become bitter and even angry with God? We looked at thirdly, faith is tested in our reception to God's word to have a meek and humble heart. It's tested in our reaction, chapter 2, to partiality. What do we do with people that are different than us? Is our faith real and do we love others who are different than us and from different spheres of life? And it's tested in how we treat one another. And then our faith is tested in our relationship to works. True faith works and always accompanied by a true saving faith is going to be a life of deeds or the faith isn't real. Then we saw that faith is tested in relation to our words with our tongue and what we speak and so forth. And on it goes and we come here to the final section and we've been looking at that, that faith is tested in truthfulness. It's tested in our prayer and finally it's tested in our confrontation to one another. And so there he is closing this letter with three crucial issues in the community. And he exhorts us, you remember in 512, against foolish oath taking. Then he exhorts us to pray for one another seven different times in those verses. He told us to pray And now we come to the close of the book. He exhorts us, he exhorts you to confront sin. Now, what's a little bit interesting here from James, I suppose, is he he closes his epistle not really with a greeting to all of his friends. He doesn't even really close with a benediction, does he? You're thinking of some other letters that close with greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet the saints here, you know, and then he might even close with a benediction, but not here. James closes, 
keeping in his motif all the way with a call to action, a call to action, a call to restore a wandering believer. Now, the question that I'm asking you, right, because this is about you and I and how we're responding to the word of God. Every one of you have a responsibility, okay? And, and we're asking this question, what responsibility do I have, do you have in the body of Christ towards a sinning believer or a sinning wanderer? Now, as I mentioned, these verses are the subject of a number of questions. And the most crucial question is this. Tell me what you think, Grace Church of the Valley. Our verses 19 through 20 addressed to believers or are they addressed to unbelievers? Some scholars, and I don't want to get too technical with you, but we got to work through the passage. Some scholars believe that 19 and 20 describe an unbeliever. An unbeliever who is turning, if you will, to Christ at salvation. And if you look at it that view, that way, in other words, this would be, this passage, an evangelistic call to salvation. Therefore, he would be saying to you, would be James and the Spirit of God through the Word of God, you need to go after them. And he closes his book in that thought with an appeal to go after those without Christ. However, I believe primarily, not exclusively, this passage is a call to restore a fallen believer. A fallen believer. And let me give you two reasons that I believe this. Number one, just if you're taking notes, just the present context you'll note that James begins the text. Look at it in verse 19. He opens with that familiar phrase, my brothers. And the context here in this sense is a believer. He's addressing believers. Now he uses that phrase throughout the book of James, but look just here in this chapter, the ideal of brothers. He says in chapter 5, in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers... Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Look at verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. And then finally in verse 12, above all, my brothers. So he, now he closes this epistle here with that phrase in verse 19, my brothers. And so I tend to not think that his aim is primarily evangelistic. I think it's a call to restoration of a believer who has strayed from the truth. That's the present context. But look at the, secondly, the immediate context. Some people just say there's no, there's no flow here. He just closes his book with a new thought. But I see a connection. I think there is a closure to the entire book here and inflow with what he's just said. Why do I say that? Well, you'll note here, he says in verse 19, my brothers, if any among you, and he seems to be in that vein here, he's speaking to those in the body of Christ. You remember if you go back to verse 13, remember he says that phrase there, he says, is anyone among you suffering? So you got people in the flock that are suffering. They're to pray. Look at verse 13. Is anyone implied among you cheerful? You know, let them sing praise. 
Look at verse 14 a third time. Is anyone among you sick? Now, you'll note here, look at verse 19. If anyone among you, what? Wanders, wanders. In other words, this wandering person was among them and they needed to go turn them back. I think there's a little bit of a flow. Look at verse 16 there. Remember in that great section just a week ago, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And here's why. Look at verse 16. That you may be, what? Healed. Okay? And we talked about that being not physical healing, but spiritual healing. So here seems to be the flow. However, if you pray and you confess, okay, if a believer doesn't forsake sin, then you are called to go after them. So prayer then is a must, as we saw with Elijah, but it is not a substitute. Here's the point. For your personal responsibility to go after one among us who is wandering from the truth. So for these two reasons, I believe that James is primarily referring to a sinning believer and not an unbeliever. So I'm going to ask you the question, right? Because this is about what we're to do as a church. We're here equipping you. What responsibility do you have in the body of Christ towards a sinning believer? And I say a sinning believer, maybe they're an unbeliever. Sometimes it's hard to know that, isn't it? I don't always know that. In other words, it, it's somebody who was amongst us, but they've, they've wandered. And I'm thinking it's primarily somebody that was named among us, but they're here, they're wandering. So what am I to do? Let me identify here before us three features that you have in restoring a falling believer. Okay? Three features that you have in restoring a falling believer. And what I want to do here today, if it's okay with you, and I suppose it is, I'm up here, right? I want to move quickly through this, and then I want to get to an application for you, okay? And maybe as you think about this, maybe the Spirit of God is going to bring someone to mind. Maybe as I speak, someone's come to mind. Maybe it's you this morning. Maybe you've been wandering, you just wandered in. We're glad you're here, okay? But maybe you've got somebody in your mind. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's somebody you sit next to at Emmanuel or somebody you sit next to at Kingsburg or somebody you broke bread with or somebody you took communion with or somebody that was in the fold and somebody that was part of the fellowship, not just here, but even somewhere else. And now they're AWOL. They're absent without leave. And you don't know what's happened to them. What responsibility do you have? What responsibility do I have? Let's dive into it and we'll move quickly. Okay, first, the condition described. The condition described. Look at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Now, remember as I step into this with you, this is a test of your faith. This is not an option, okay? This is not a message for the elders. It's for you. This is not a message for the deacons. It's for you. You say, well, pastor, I'm just kind of normal. It's for you. (laughs) You say, I'm just a a believer. It's for you. You say, I've only been a believer 10 years, not 40 years. It's for you. It's a test of your faith. That's what James is getting getting to us. So here's the condition. 
If anyone among you wanders, identify in that word in verse 19. They're wandering, or here in the text, they're, they're, they wander. It's just simply the word planao that we get planet from. And it means here to wander. It's the ideal of going astray. Packed into that word of wandering or going astray is to be deceived. It's the ideal of to be misled. Now look at the text, what they're wandering from, very clearly in verse 19. If anyone among you wanders from the, what? The truth. Now you say, what, what do you mean the truth? I think that, take that in a very broad sense. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel in its broadest sense. The truth that has come to us that is to be believed and that is to be obeyed. So in some manner, some who were part of the flock have wandered from the gospel like a sheep would wander and stray, if you will, from a shepherd. They've become lost. They have wandered from the fold. And I think bound up in the language, they've either wandered on their own volition or they've wandered under the influence of others. Some people that you know, that I know, wander because of false teachers. They're around the truth of God. They're hearing the truth of the gospel. But somehow a cult has come into their life. And it has pulled them away. And you see these types of words listed like in 2 Timothy 2.17, talking about false teachers when it says their talk will spread like gangrene. You ever seen somebody who has gangrene? Boy, I've seen that. Boy, you look at something like that, you almost have to turn away. And he's saying here, there's teachers, false teachers, who talk spread like gangrene. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.17, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men, here's what it says, who have gone astray from the truth. And I just note there for you, often false teachers are part of who we are. And then they go astray. And sometimes in Acts 20, they drag the disciples away. But I thought that phrase was interesting when he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they've upset the faith of some. So they have gone astray and now they're pulling other people astray and making them wander from the truth. You see this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, when it's speaking of a false teacher having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. It says they have gone astray. In other words, you have teachers that have gone astray and wandered from the truth, and then they take people with them. In fact, Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 3.13. It says that evil people and imposters will go from bad to worst. It says they're deceiving and being deceived. Sometimes I think false teachers are absolutely deceived, demonically inspired, not quite aware of what they're doing. Others know well what they're doing, but they're deceived or they're being deceived. So here, this condition, as we begin to unpack this principle, the condition described is they're wandering from the truth itself. They could be wandering from the truth, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Do you know anybody like that? Or this wandering could include, and you would know this, not just from the truth itself by way of 
um, doctrine, but you can wander from the truth, and that would include moral failure. Moral failure, which is more often the case. And here, the gospel is not only to be understood, it's to be lived out. So how does somebody wander from the truth of the gospel? Well, it's possible to, to wander morally. People compromise one's standard. It's possible to wander in one's identification with the church by failing to contribute properly to its work and to its worship. It's possible to wander in terms of Christian service by becoming what Paul said, weary in well-doing. And it's possible to wander in one's own soul and lose that first love in the book of Revelation. So you got somebody either wandering from the truth doctrinally or you got somebody wandering from the truth morally, if you will. No wonder James said in this book, you adulteresses, he, that's what he called some of them. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And I think of when Paul told Demas, he said... Of Demas, he forsake Paul for what moral reasons, and it says, having loved this present world. So there's people who wander for various reasons. When I was a, a young boy, I don't know why this popped into my mind. Most of you won't relate if it, it, it was something on TV, but it reminds me of this. There was an old show, and I'm talking when I was a little guy. Did anybody ever watch that show, Lost in Space? You know, and I don't, I, it popped in my mind, remember that show Lost in Space, and there was some robot, and whenever they were in trouble on the spacecraft, the robot would say, danger, danger, and he would just kind of, he would light up, and, and, and I, as I thought of this passage, you've got a believer here in the danger zone. They're either wandering from the message itself, or they've wandered into a moral mess. Some guy that you know now has another girl who's not his wife. He's divorced his spouse and some woman, vice. You, you have these things all the time. And people just kind of drift. So there's the condition described. But secondly, what's the counsel prescribed? What's the counsel given here? That's the condition. Here's the counsel. Look back in the text in verse 19. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, watch this, and someone, here's the key phrase, brings him back. Here's the counsel. And someone brings him back. To bring back is just, it, it's, the, it's the word for repentance. It means to bring back. It, it means to, to turn around. The ideal in this word is there's a turning from sin. There's a turning to God. There's a call to repentance to this person. Okay? That's what it is. So you've got a description here of someone wandering. The prescription here is someone is to bring them back. Now, if, you know, if we just have to, for a moment, is this a call to salvation? I mean, when you're bringing someone back, is it a call to salvation? It, I mean, it well could be. I mean, when you look at all through the New Testament, of someone coming to Christ, there is a turning to God. Acts 14, 15. Acts 15, 19. Acts 26, 18. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. But here, could, could you reason with me? This one that James is referring to is among you. He's among you. They, he, she has been in your presence worshiping, at least outwardly, they've identified with Christ, 
and with other believers. And it would seem here that the turning back is to the faith from which they have strayed. And I think there's biblical precedence that this could be a believer. Peter uh, heard this. In fact, Jesus used this very word with Peter. Do you remember in Luke 22, verse 32, when Jesus said to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus had to use that word with Peter. He was, of course, a believer, but he had wandered, and the Lord brought him back by his prayer and by the breakfast after the resurrection. And he said, when you've turned again, then strengthen your brothers. But here, and I'll say more on this, look at here, the counsel prescribed. Look at verse 19. And I'll get back to this again. They wander from the truth and someone brings them back. You can't miss this. You are to go after them, you. You are the someone. It's a test of your faith. You cannot, I cannot simply become inactive. Out of love, out of concern, you go to the one who's wandering And bring them back. Of course, it's a work of God, but you have a responsibility. Grace Church of the Valley, let's let's do this. Let's do this. You say, well, what could happen if if I do this? Look at verse 20. Let him know, it's the word of God speaking to us. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So from the condition described, the counsel that's prescribed, here's the commendation received. It's a commendation, not condemnation, but commendation. In other words, as you take the action to go after the one who has wandered among you, the one who is on a ruinous path, the wonderful blessing The commendation is that those who turn back a sinner from the error of his way, two things will happen. You will deliver their soul from death, praise God, and you will cover a multitude of sins. Now, now just look at the text again. Verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner, you might say, and I don't think I'd be hard with you sounds very much though that this is an unbeliever you're bringing back a i'm just looking at the word a sinner a sinner and in many cases maybe in the majority of cases that is a description of the unsaved okay and it may well be it may well be i guess what i'm telling you i don't want to be over dogmatic where i don't think the scriptures owed over dogmatic. Maybe James left this a little bit. Is it a believer? I, I think so. They were among you. And you're going to them and you're turning them back and blessing here the commendation. You bring back a, a sinner and sinner is identified in the scripture as an unbeliever such as Genesis 13, 13. It described Solomon this way as wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Those were complete pagans. 
they were sinners against the Lord. You well know Psalm 1.1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of what? Sinners, those are unbelievers. You would agree, I would agree. You're not standing in the path here of walking in the ways of people who are unsaved. In the New Testament, a sinner often described those outside the kingdom of God. Jesus declared, did he not? You can finish the sentence in Matthew 9, 13. I did not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners, right? He came to call the unrighteous. He came to call sinners. Those are people who are not saved. Do you remember here when the tax collector cried out? He said, God, be merciful to me, a what? Sinner. And Jesus said that tax collector went to his house justified. Paul, you remember in Romans 5, said that while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died for us. And so here... you're maybe turning someone back who's wandered and they were never in Christ. However, however, James used the word sinner to describe us. Look back one chapter in chapter 4, verse 8. Look at verse 7. Remember when he was giving us that staccato imperative passage of what we needed to do to release ourselves from the clenching fist of the vice of worldliness? 4-7, submit yourselves therefore to God. We believe he's saying that to believers. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you what? Sinners. I believe he, he told us that. And, and I think, too, you got to be careful if you say sinner in every single passage is identifying an unbeliever because you well know and I know that Paul, at the end of the li- his life, said, I am the chief of what? Sinners. He said he was a sinner even at the end of his life, probably weeks, if not a few months before his death. So, who is it? Is it a believer? Is it an unbeliever? I don't know. I don't know. And maybe that's not the point. The point is you, someone, must turn them back. And as you Turn back the sinner. Two wonderful commendations are received when that sinner turns back from the error of his way. Look first, you save his soul from what? Death. Soul obviously describes the inner life of a person who's responsible to God. But you save their soul from death. What kind of death? Well, you get into a whole launching there of questions. Like how many, Scott? A number of them. Is he talking about eternal death? Is is he talking about physical death? Is he talking about spiritual death? Because they're all spoken of in the Scripture. It's hard to know to which James is is pinpointing. But let's not lose sight of that. It could be in an ultimate sense, you save someone who is an unregenerate person as you turn them back to God if they've been in the fold and they come to Christ, you save their soul from eternal death. I mean, you, we know from the Scripture that sin leads to eternal death. And we don't always know the condition of the heart if one who is truly in Christ. And it could be that as you go to someone today, as you apply this message to your brother, to your sister, to your child to your grandchild, you may be saving and delivering their soul from eternal damnation. It it could mean that. 
It could also mean, secondly, that the restored sinner will be saved from physical death that can come through God's chastening discipline. In other words, when a believing Christian, believing, remains unrepentant, sometimes God will take them home prematurely through physical death. Sin that goes unchecked can destroy both the very soul and life of a believer. And I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 11.30 for this reason. Remember when Paul said this at communion? He said, many of you are weak and sick and a number. Do you remember what he said? Sleep. He wasn't talking about our sleep last night. Sleep as a metaphor for death. He said, some sleep. So could it be that James is saying that if you turn In this case, a believer from the error of his way, you will save their soul from physical death and cover a multitude of sins. It could be. It's hard for me to actually be dogmatic on this. And maybe that's not our case to always look into somebody's heart to know where they stand. But don't lose sight of it. You've got a responsibility to go to them and love on them and talk to them and bring them back and turn them back to God is the thought. So, you know, the other thing is, look back in James 1. We've already seen that aspect before. Remember when he was talking about temptation in 1.14? And he said, each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when, verse 15, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished and it is fully grown, it brings forth what? Death. In other words, sin just runs its cycle and it will ruin you. And it could be that it leads to both eternal damnation. It could lead to physical separation. It may lead to just hear the suffering of a spiritual life, and it leads to that kind of death. In fact, look over at James 1.21. Therefore, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your, what? Saul, that wasn't being saved like salvation. He's telling people in the throes of temptation, you need to put away filthiness, wickedness, and receive with wickedness that implanted word in your heart, which is able to, I said it this way, deliver your soul from trial. So James is giving, I think, a very broad picture. He says, as you go to that person, look back in chapter 5 now, you Bring back a sinner from his wandering. You'll save his soul from death. And look at the second commendation. You will cover a multitude of what? Sins. Is it talking about evangelism? It could be. Maybe someone never knew Christ and you're turning them back, introducing them to Christ. You save eternally their soul from death. And in doing so, they receive the forgiveness of God, if you will. The forgiveness as a once-for-all unrepeatable experience of justification when in terms of their their judicial standing with God, all their sins, past, present, and future, are put away forever. But it could be that James is saying, listen, you go back to that person that you graduated with at Emmanuel High School. And, And as you go back to them and turn them back, You're covering a multitude of sins 
And it could be that James is speaking of the need for forgiveness of those sins in our daily life which a believer commits. And it could be that James has that in mind. And as you go back and as they turn back, you not only deliver their soul, but you cover their sin. And the thought here is covering. It's not that you're covering up and hiding their sin in secret. I think you understand that. Out of fear and shame, the thought is no. Rather, as you go to them and bring them back and deliver their soul, you're covering, listen, in the sense of securing their forgiveness, hiding it, if you will, concealing it. And the ideal of forgiving the sin is removing it, eliminating it, and its consequences. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. So I don't mean to go back and forth here. I'm I'm not always sure. Are you sure I can't look into people's hearts? Certainly we can look for fruit in their life. Certainly we can ask and say, is there there a time and place when you trusted Christ and do you see a difference in your life? I'm concerned for you. I'm coming to you. But you say, Pastor Scott, what am I to do? What am I to do? Thanks for asking. Okay, um, three keys for restoring a fallen believer. Okay, and I'm just going to stay in the text here, but I want to put it in terms of application for you, okay? Number one, <laughs> you just need to own up. That's the word. I think that's the word to fill in. Own up. I wanted to say man up, but that doesn't allow the women to be part of this. But you and I just need to own up. And and what I mean there is, look at the text again in verse 19. And someone brings him back. I love that. Someone brings them back. In other words, maybe it's somebody in our church. It's your family. It's your friend. It's your classmates. It's your father. It's your mother. It's a Hume Laker. It's a Malibuer. I don't even know if that's a word. You took communion with them. You saw them get baptized. And now they're just a wall. You say, what do I need to do? You need to own up. This person, I I could call him a sinning believer. It's okay. Lost like a wandering star is an absolute grave danger. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a grandchild. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's someone here this morning. And the responsibility, listen, I want to be super clear here, of a sinning believer is the local body. And if I could just say it very humbly to you, you are the someone. Not me, although I can do it. Not the elders, though I hope they would. Not the deacons, you high school student. You are the the someone You're not to be passive in this. You're to be active. You're not to retreat here. You are to pursue the wanderer, the wandering believer, the wandering sinner. I'm thinking of Jude as Dr. Russ begins to teach that in Jude 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. I mean, there are people that you and I know, they're on their way to destruction. Eternally so, maybe, in some cases. 
Physically so in some cases. Spiritually maybe in some cases their soul's going to die and you've got to own up. Beloved, listen. Satan is a roaring lion. And his traps are crafty. His schemes are devious. And you must rescue the wanderers. And you might say, Pastor, it's not my business to put my nose into other people's business. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, according to God's word, it is your business. And you are your brother's keeper. You are. I am. I mean, you just, it is your business. And I don't mean to say, like, you're being rude, but maybe like this. You take somebody to coffee this week. Hey, listen, I just, I haven't seen you in the life of the church for years. What happened? I just remember when we were in that Bible study together. In fact, we were in that, how are you doing? I'm concerned for you. How can I pray for you? Can I help you? Can, can I minister to you? Can, can I bring you to a study with me? But you have that responsibility. And I think my point is, you've got to own up. This is not the responsibility of the elders. It is. You understand what I mean? It's the responsibility of you. <laughs> okay? You remember the story I think I've told before of the boy who was trudging through the ghetto? And as he's trudging through the ghetto with a small crippled child on his back and someone asked him how he could carry such a heavy load and that little boy responded, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. He's my brother. Listen, you got a brother or sister wandering? Go get him. Go love on him. Go talk to him. Follow this simple command, Grace Church of the Valley. You know it well. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, what does it say? Go and show him his fault in what? Private. Okay? So here's the principle. I'll give you a little simple principle how to own up. If you know, you must go. There it is. If you know, you must go. Here's a test of faith. Number one, own up. Own up. Number two, number two, love up. Okay? See, where'd you come up with that? I don't know. It just fit, kind of. Love up. Grace Church, what's, the, what's your first reaction when you hear of someone taking a nosedive into faith? Do you point the finger of accusation? Do you point the finger of condemnation? Or are you so burdened for them that you want to go and bring that person back? Sometimes they don't come back, I know. But you got to love up on them. And as you go to people, okay, you got to love up on them. And I think the attitude is important. It says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if any one of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. So you just come humbly. You don't come like the Gestapo, okay? 
You don't come like the KGB. I don't even know what that means. You just got to come to them and own up on it. And then you got to love up on them. You got to come in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch of yourself. Paul said in Galatians 6, 1, lest you too be tempted. And so there's humility, but there's an expression. There's an attitude of love in this. I'm thinking of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brothers, this is to you. We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the what? The weak. And then the best phrase is the last one. It says, be patient with all men. Listen, we just got to love people. Sometimes the most loving thing you could do is just go talk to someone, right? I had to apply that this week to a young man that I've not seen here in months. Brother, we miss you. I love you. Where are you? You know, just gracious, where are you? I texted him this morning. He said, why would I text him this morning? Because I have to apply the passage, don't I, to people I know? Where are you, brother? Get back in God's fold. We miss you. He texts back. He said, Pastor, I've just been very spiritually depressed. So you need the part of the body of Christ. I mean, I think I've shared with you one time before, I had a dear friend who got caught in horrible sin, just moral sin, and uh, wandered, if you will, and became so um, discouraged and depressed that he wasn't even sure he wanted to live. That's, that's all I'll say to you. And somebody said, Scott, you better call this guy. And I called him, and he was so distraught. And you know what he actually needed? He didn't need somebody to condemn him, at least at that point, because his sin was already exposed. He was a leader at a church, not a pastor. I, I think I've shared this with you. He taught a Bible study. Six months ago, he had, he had confessed the sin. He got kind of caught in the sin. So sometimes when you get caught with the sin, the hammer just drops on the guy. You know, you're, you know people just chewed this guy up and spit him out. And it's kind of like he kept getting lower and lower. And, you know, six months after that, you get a little depressed. And then you wonder, gosh, why am I even here on this earth? And that's the guy that I told you that some people told him, hey, you don't need to wear a suit to church anymore. I said, they didn't tell you that. Yeah, you don't need to wear a suit because only leaders wear suits. I said, he didn't tell you that. Yeah, he told me that, Scott. And then he went on to tell him, he said, one pastor said to this guy, you're the worst example that this church has had in the last 15 years. I said, he told you that? Yeah, yeah. I said, I don't believe he told you that. Yeah, he told you that. And so this guy was just being dismantled. And he just needed somebody to come and encourage him and love him and say, walk with Christ again. But he's out there floating. He's just floating. And he needed somebody to come help him and love on him. Maybe you've got someone in your life you've got to own up. You've got to love up. If you will, turn back to Hebrews. Just one book. Turn left, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 pages. Look at this. In Hebrews chapter 3, I love this text. Is this not each of us? Is this not the love up on people? And, you know, the writer of Hebrews, so helpful. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, so tender. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. We're talking to us this morning. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But... 
Verse 13, exhort one another every day as, it, as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the what? The deceitfulness of sin. Oh, it's such, you know, it's easy to become hard by sin, can it? I know people who get hardened by sin, hardened by sin, hardened by sin, so involved in sin that they can't get out of sin. I think of one guy that I confronted, he's a very young pastor who's having an affair with a woman, and we went to him. I'm like in my 20s, and, you know, just, we just said, brother, what are you doing? I, you know, I just had to be firm with her. I was with another pastor. I'm like Mr. Junior Pastor at that point. I'm just kind of watching this, you know, and talking to him. Hey, you're in sin. I just remember you weep like a baby. Just a grown man, like right in front of my presence, just weeping, just... And then the next week, he's back in a wrong relationship with another woman. Came back to him. He just weeped and weeped. And then a month later, he left his wife. Then six months later, he divorced his wife. And then about a year later, he married that woman. I mean, you, you can get so caught up in the deceitfulness of sin that you lose sight of the truth itself and you wander. You say, well, Scott, maybe that guy wasn't a believer. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Says he is, certainly doesn't live like it. But sin is so deceitful. So listen, you must love up on people. We are to care for them and help them and go to them in gentleness, but with firmness, out of care, out of concern. So own up, love up, and then thirdly, just we're done, cover up, okay? As you, as you turn them back, you cover a multitude of sins. In other words, you're, if, if they turn back, it's a blessing. This is a high note. Their sins are covered. They're remembered no more in God's forgiveness through Christ. And it may be that the one you're turning back has multiple number of sins, but if they turn back and you become that change agent, they will be forgiven. And I think here, I think he's just saying the case is not helpless. As they repent, if they're walking this way and you go to them and you turn them back to the truth, you not only save their soul from destruction, but you save in that sense and cover a multitude of sins. In fact, I don't know how much I would take this, but look at verse 20 in the ESV. It says, and will cover a multitude of sins. The scholar Will Varner said it's put in the future tense because he's probably saying it could be that as you go to that guy, that girl that you know, you're not only going to turn them back, but you're going to save them a vicious cycle of a ruinous you know, pattern because sin will always take you faster, longer, harder down a road you don't want to go. And as you turn them back, you're going to not only deliver their soul, but you're going to cover a multitude of sins that they may even commit. And so here's the point. However great the defection, however damaging the action, however erroneous the belief, when God forgives, he forgets. And there's a promise in this. I'm thinking of Isaiah 43. God said, I, even I, am the one who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, or I will remember your sins no more. Do you remember when it said this in Peter? Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of what? Sins. Love on people. So listen, Grace Church, own up, love up, and, and cover up. 
So I'm not quite sure how to respond to certain people. You may be the person I'm talking to here. And listen, if you're here, God will cover your sins. You turn back. You say, what does it mean to turn back? It just means to repent. You're walking this way in this relationship morally. It's wrong. And, and you're hearing the word and you need to repent. You need to say about your sin what God says about your sin. And then you need to turn from it and begin to walk towards God. And as you walk towards God, he's going to cover your sins. He's going to forgive your sins. Did not Jesus say, beloved, listen to the words, Matthew 18. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And it says that he finds it truly. I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is the will of my father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. Oh, beloved, listen, what a great way to finish this text. Listen, own up love up and cover up? What if we had a church that was all doing this? What if we were so connected to people and so connected to families and so connected to students that we just cared for people like this and humble gentleness but firmness and directness? I think the Lord would use us. There's no guarantee that they'll repent, but we got to own up, love up, and cover up.